You've landed on The Substance, a podcast aimed at being biblical, thoughtful, and human. Join us each week as we engage the culture without the culture war. I'm your host, Philip Marinello, here with my friends and co-hosts here, Trevor Aiken. Hey, how's it going? And Vincent Edwards. What's going on? And uh, joining us today, a uh, special guest, the co-founder and current president of the Ann Campaign, a lawyer, a book writer, co-author, uh, and many other things, uh, Justin Gibney. How's it going, guy? What's up? Going good. Welcome. Glad we're finally able to sit down with you here. Yeah, I feel like it's a long time coming. We've been uh, talking about the Ann Campaign forever, it feels like. We've been mm-hmm. uh, kind of talking around it, too, when we get guests like show. Or when we had Alan Noble recently, but it's it's nice to have the Justin Gibney from the Ant Campaign on finally to to talk about what you guys are doing because we're we're fans of the work. Absolutely, right on. Glad to be here. So um, I'll I'll just kick us off here. I don't want to go super deep into it here because you can find it on on your podcast on several other podcasts. Don't want to go deep into the inception of the Ann campaign, but for any listeners who may not be familiar with it, you want to just give kind of a brief overview of how it came to be and what the mission is? Yeah, sure. So the Ann campaign basically came, you know, as you as you mentioned, I am a uh, political strategist. And when I was in politics, I just started to get the feeling that there, there just w- was something that wasn't right, that both the directions, the two options that we had weren't really allowing Christians to be as faithful as we should be or led us not to be as faithful mm-hmm. as we should be. And so I really wanted to to change that, end up meeting uh, Show Baraka uh, and Angel Maldonado, and we created the Ann Campaign, really with the purpose of raising civic literacy, having better uh, representation, but also helping Christians apply their values to the issues of the day in a better way. Not necessarily primarily as conservatives or progressives, but really applying biblical principles first. Mm-hmm. And we wanted to create a framework to help Christians do that. It's amazing. I love it. That's awesome. I'd love to hear a little bit more on the, the, the um, civic literacy. Just from your, your vantage point and your experience, what you've seen over the years, why is civic literacy so important? Well, we think Christians should be engaged in the civic process. And if you don't know how the process works, uh, if you don't have a plan, uh, if you don't know the history of the country and, and really the structure it's hard to be effective in that space. Uh, and so we want to make sure that people understand how uh, our, our government works and how representation works in this uh, constitutional republic and the best ways to engage and organize and so on. And so we think raising civic literacy really is a ministry that the church ha- has needed for quite a bit because we do see, you know, politics, as I say all the time, touches every aspect of society. And so it gives right. us a robust opportunity to love our neighbor. And if we want yes. to love our neighbor, we should do so impactfully and uh, effectively. Amen. So, I mean, how do you feel like, and I know this might be painting with a broad brush, the folks you've talked to, you've given speeches and put on seminars and conferences all around the country. Where do you see people being formed as far as their civic understanding or lack thereof? Yeah, I think they're being formed a lot right now by social media. And so they'll mm. have their favorite talking heads that they'll listen to. Uh, some folks, it's talk radio. Some folks, usually a little bit older folks, it's uh, cable news. But basically, we're being discipled and formed through kind of secular progressivism and conservatism, uh, which, you know, which in the Ant campaign we teach is far from what both are far from what the gospel demands of us. And we need to use a better framework, even if we 
lean one way or the other or use it kind of as a, a point of reference. Well, that's good. Talk to us a little bit too about the campaign and some of the things that you're aiming for. How long have you guys been around now? What, how many years have you been in operation? So we launched um, in earnest, I think, in 2016. Um, That's a so good we, time to launch. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, God, it was it was God's timing. I mean, we we had been putting in work for quite a bit. I mean, I, I initially came up with the general concept probably in 2012, but mm-hmm. you know, we launched in 2016, and it happened to be you know at a moment that there was a lot of division and polarization in the church. And um, we're just doing our best to help folks work through it. So in that time, about five years, in the grand scheme of things, probably pretty young for an organization of your type. But are there some early wins that kind of illustrate the kind of work that you feel is illustrative of, of what you're trying to do with the AND campaign? Any, any kind of early successes that you've been seeing that you'd like to celebrate? Yeah, I mean, there's there's been a lot of stuff, you know, last year, this time, maybe about a year and a half ago, I guess now uh, we were able to raise, you know, one point three million dollars for small churches who were struggling to get through the pandemic. Uh, We now have about 13 chapters in different cities all all over the country. Uh, And we've really been able to engage a lot of Christians and Christian influencers with a message that I think inspires people. And that's our biggest thing. It's it's making sure that people hear and understand the framework. So some of the biggest wins for me are just to hear folks from different demographics tell us, you're saying exactly what I've been thinking, but just didn't have the language to articulate. And to me, that that's really what, it, what, what it's all about for me. Well, I mean, that's one of the things that I loved. So I met you a month and a half or so ago here in Kansas City. At the launch of it, I was really encouraged to see, okay, like there are a lot of churches represented in Kansas City that both care very much about being faithful to the scriptures and honoring the the commands and the character of God as as put forth in the word, but also take very seriously like living in this world. Like we talk a lot on the show about like the theology of place. Like we we're called to live holy. We're called to love our neighbors. We're called to be salt and light. And it was encouraging for me to see here at the inception of and campaign Kansas City, several churches be uh, just represented churches I wasn't even aware of. So it's uh it's exciting in the communities I'm imagining in the other communities that uh that have chapters you're getting just to build that active Christian infrastructure in. Yeah, that's what we're looking to do. I mean, we have so many silos uh in in our in our cities within the body that we really need to break down. And and that's one of the things that I saw when we first started to establish the end campaign was that there were biblical churches right down the street from me that, you know, I had never had a conversation with, didn't know who the pastor was. Uh, And so I think through our civic engagement, through addressing issues that Christians have cared about, we'll be able to reach a lot of, uh, bring a lot of churches together that normally wouldn't have a conversation. So breaking down those silos is another important aspect of what the end campaign is trying to do. Yeah, that's really good because, yeah, you see if the church is fragmented, it makes it harder in the way our system works, right, to kind of form a coalition to be able to get stuff together. What's interesting is, is in theory, like there have been Christian political coalitions before <laughs> and, and exist. You know what I mean? Um, sure. How, how do you kind of define yourself in relation to that? Like is Ann Campaign just that, but more trying to be balanced and bipartisan or... 
what what would you say? I mean, you think about the different Christian coalitions out there and the advocacy groups and you, you know the groups that I'm talking about. Like, how does Ant Campaign kind of different and sets itself apart from that? Yeah, I mean, I think we see ourselves as kind of the heirs of the civil rights movement to a certain extent. Um, and so we do take from that spirit and, and from that, you know, those methods of organizing and engaging. But at the same time, we realize that we're dealing with different issues, too. And so whereas the, 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 the civil rights movement dealt with a lot of the justice issues, there's also a lot of moral order issues that we need to deal with as well. Hmm. One of the problems that you saw outside of the civil rights movement with a lot of coalitions was that it connected itself probably too tightly with ideology. Hmm. And so you saw a lot of conservative ideology kind of sneak into and almost lead, whether it's the moral majority or others. And we mm-hmm. want to we want to stay away from that. We, we do want to be nonpartisan. Uh, it's not, you know, balance. I guess you could put it that way, but we're really just try, trying to find the truth. Right. Yeah. I love that. I appreciate that so much. You talked about that a bunch on your uh, your latest episode of your show. Yeah. I mean, there, there are a bunch of issues where, you know, we may be further right than the Republicans are on some things or further left than the Democrats are, depending on what the issue is. And so it's not a matter of seeing where the two are and making sure that we fall in the middle. It's about trying to get it right. Now, practically speaking, when you have two two ideologies that are as extreme as they are right now, there's no wonder why a lot of people would fall in the middle just trying to be reasonable. Uh, and so there's nothing wrong with that either. But we're not seeking the middle. If we land yeah. there, that's where we land. If we land somewhere else, that's cool, too. Love we want to get to the best policy and we want to let Christians know that we can disagree. Uh, yeah. You know, what we offer and what we think the gospel offers is a framework. That is huge. I- I've talked to a number of people about that where it's like, look, <laughs> the essentials of the gospel. And I don't want to minimize them, but like it's a small list, right? Like mm-hmm. the things that we need to mutually affirm in order to be in like good fellowship one another is small. But then let's say we we differ on those things. We're called to love our enemies. Mm-hmm. It's it shouldn't be. It, it should not be the way things are right now. Hmm. Yeah, I, I totally agree. There's there's a way to disagree, especially within the body, man. But I think our framework and the way that we approach it should allow us to disagree. And still have the same objective, right? Still have the same goal. Mm-hmm. And when you understand that you have a very similar goal, you can accept that there may be some disagreement on how to get there. Uh, and so those are some of the things that we're trying to emphasize and just do it a different way to where I don't think any party will ever, ever feel completely comfortable with the and campaign because we're not there to make them feel comfortable. We're there to challenge and to get to the right answers. And we don't have many of the same incentives or, you know, um, ulterior things going on that you see in a lot of uh, different parties. Yeah. yeah. I wanted to pick your brain kind of on some of this stuff that we're talking about right now uh, as a political strategist, because, you know, over the years in history, these the two political parties that we have in America right now, because of the system of voting and everything, uh, primaries, et cetera, that is set up, the the two parties are really good at just absorbing a movement, you know, no matter what that that movement is, and then maintaining the power between the two parties. You know, if we were in another country where you had seven political parties or whatever, and campaign could form just like a Christian political party, and then you get seats and representation, and maybe you get enough seats, you you know, somebody has to form a coalition government with you, and you have a seat at the table. My question is, with the system that we have, though. How do you get stuff done without compromising too hard on your ideals? Like, because our, our system forces to a degree 
compromise. Things get messy. You don't really get to live the ideal, it seems like, always, at least on the national stage, to get stuff done. But even on the local stage, you know, everything seems to always get run through one party or the other. So how do you how do you navigate that? Yeah, I mean, I mean, obviously, we, we've said before, you know, we're not trying to be a party. But in regard to compromise, I think, you know, there's a difference between uh, compromising to get to a solution and actually compromising your principles. So there are certain compromises we just wouldn't make, but there's a lot of space in between there where we try to get to the best policy that we can get to given in the given situation. There's sometimes that you got to stand on principle and just say no. But in many cases, there are ways to work and think through issues that you may have with other people to get things done to help folks. And if we can't do that uh, within our politics, I think I think that's problematic. So I would make a distinction there between types of compromise. But, you know, every compromise on policy is not a compromise of principle. Mm. Uh, and I think that's important for people to, to realize. I think that's that's a huge point. Let's camp on that for a second. So it can be very easy to kind of be as dogmatic socially as you are biblically or spiritually. So help somebody think through like, hey, I believe X, Y, Z about whatever social, moral issue. I'm convinced that this is like that God's honor is on the line with how we do every little thing like, and I couldn't, I couldn't work side by side with somebody or I couldn't give in anything. Talk to that person, like help, help them a little bit. Yeah. So maybe it's best to do it through just a kind of real illustration. Uh, You can take LGBTQ conversation. Mm -hmm. Uh, The AND campaign is unapologetically an orthodox organization. We believe in the historic Christian sexual ethic. However, when we come to the table and you're talking about religious liberty and LGBTQ rights, that doesn't mean that I'm not going to protect uh, someone's right to, to, to get housing without discrimination to be in a job if they work at FedEx or somewhere else to not be discriminated against. Mm -hmm. There are ways to help people that you don't necessarily agree with. One place I would point people to is uh, the idea of co-belligerence, where you can actually work with other people because of common grace who you don't agree with to get things done. And there's just no other way to work within a democracy. We're not trying to compel people to do everything that the Bible tells us to do. But Mm. what we are trying to do is get is make sure that human dignity is protected and that we're promoting human flourishing. Sometimes that means that you're not going to get the perfect policy. You're not, you're not going to agree on everything, but you can, but if you love your neighbor, you can also support their, their right to, to believe otherwise, right. Mm. To believe differently mm. than you. Um, and we can't be afraid of that. Uh, yeah. You know, the end campaign doesn't agree with, you know, pluralism theologically, but we don't have a problem with civic pluralism because we live in a place we live in a country where people have different beliefs right. and we can respect that um, and we can move forward and do our best to find common ground where it's available. Uh, and so that's that's really how we approach it. Uh, if you love someone, you don't have to agree with them to try to help them or try to see their perspective and, you know, give as much as you can within the framework of your principles. And that's what we try to do. I think that. That's a really good point. And I think people struggle with that very recently this year. Um, a famous preacher, uh, John MacArthur, I don't mind naming him, he said this publicly, religious freedom was m- meaningless. So there's Christians that struggle with that tension that you talked about, like that division between what's theologically true, right? So where you talked about like theologically, 
we're not just chill with pluralism. This is not like all roads lead to heaven. But knowing what we know theologically and seeing this society that we live in, you're not trying to work people into a Christendom, a Christian kingdom, it seems like. Whereas it seems like a lot of what are called Christian political action groups seem to try to do that. So, so I guess, I guess my question is like, how do you help people who are so used to that mindset? Because it seems like there's, there's so much thinking that is in that direction of politics is all about like trying to get people righteousness into the world and to order society, how God wants society ordered, which means that they do what God says. And if we're not doing that, then I am compromising morally, you know, then I am mm. failing to do that. You know, people seem to have that, that hang up. How do you help people through that? You know, when you're working with churches and stuff and you have people who are, who are used to that mindset. For one, I just tell them that it doesn't work. <laughs> uh, you, you can't force people to be Christian. Right. Yeah. Um, and I think you have to be very careful of trying to get the government to do your work. Uh, there's a lot of work that we can do culturally and other ways socially, and you don't necessarily need the government to step in and do all of that. Now, when it comes to things that directly impact human dignity, life or death issues, whether people eat, you know, uh, what, you know, what prison sentences look like, yes, we should use our values and we should uh, try to make sure that people are treated with human dignity. Uh, but at the same time, Christianity can't be compelled. Like, I can't force you to really love God. That's something we have to do through our evangelism and be very careful of trying to do that through the government. Because keep in mind, that we, can, we can do that through the government. But if somebody else were in the control, they could try to force that upon us through the government as well. And so mm. I think it's best that we do that work uh, through through other means. Well, and if we're theologically and if we're theologically orthodox, we know that. We know that it is the Holy Spirit that opens eyes and changes hearts and like brings spiritual life to like the spiritually dead. Like we know that. But then through various historical structures and systems, like it can be easy to kind of unthoughtfully just kind of assume that position. Let me ask a question too. Is it kind of like what we're trying to do is find these biblical principles that we know on biblical authority are true, whether it's things like, to use the language of the declaration, like inalienable rights, stuff like that, that people rationally agree to, like through, through evidence and things like that. Like we're trying to find that common grace, common ground with them between biblical principle and what people in society at large, what we can like prove to them or show to them rationally, you know, versus the things that are maybe they would disagree with, but we believe on divine fiat. Yeah. I mean, that's a, that's a, that's a pretty good line to draw. I I don't think there's a clear line to say, Exactly. You know, like we could put this into some kind of formula to say exactly what stuff we we would touch and that we wouldn't. But again, I think the stuff that, again, that you can explain, I mean, there are certain things that are faith based. Right. And so Mm -hmm. you're not going to be able to prove it. Um, And then there are other things that, you know, are just, you know, traditions or even doctrines that you're not going to force other people to do, even if you feel like you can explain why it's good. Right. Um, so, so there's not always like a bright red line or a bright framework to say exactly what issues we'll touch and we won't, but I think we always need to be very vigilant and deliberate about what issues we're pushing and which ones we let people decide for themselves. And so it's, it's, it's not, it's something that we're always going to have to be looking at case by case 
even if we don't always know exactly where we'll, we'll, where we'll land. No, that makes sense. Yeah. There's one thing. So I, I actually just recently listened to your episode, Church Politics, and you, you made a mention about um, moral imagination. And that's not a term that I've heard. How would you define what moral imagination is and, and how is moral imagination helpful? Yeah, so, so moral imagination is the ability to see not just what has been kind of historically, not what is in the present, but see how things ought to be, hmm. right? So if I go into a very tough situation and somebody's hmm. yelling at me, cussing at me, calling me out, out of my name, it takes moral imagination to say, I still see your human dignity. And this is really what I, I see a lot. I saw a lot in, in just reading and talking to my elders about the civil rights movement. It was the ability to not be caught up in the moment, mm. to say, OK, the moment is what yeah. it is. It's bad. It's ugly. These people are being very ugly. But I have a God who says these people have have value and dignity, even if they don't treat me that way. And so moral imagination allows you to take yourself out of that. Look at God's promises. Look at what faith demands that you do. And reach for a better way to go about things and not just a way to survive or a way to get back at your enemy. That's really what moral imagination is. It's, it's our ability to say, hey, everybody has human dignity. We don't have to fight over human dignity. I can treat you well, even when you don't treat me well. Uh, mm -hmm. Moral imagination allows us to understand that there are harsh lessons that we have to learn. But sometimes there's blessings within those lessons. If we're caught up in the moment or uh, we're just caught up in what has happened before that moment, we may not see what God could have in store for us. And, and so I think in the public square, moral imagination allows us to seek a better way of doing things, even if that yeah. way hasn't been, you know, uh, illustrated or we haven't seen it uh, in our lifetime. We have to believe there's a better way and, and seek that better way. But you can't do that unless you see something outside of what what's in our face today. Yeah. Wow. That's super good. That's a good kind of prompt. One of our listeners sent a question um, just about like partisanship and like unexamined nationalism. Like how can we kind of break through some of those defenses and barriers to kind of suggest and spur on in love a true moral imagination with people who maybe are engaged in culture wars and they don't even realize it? Yeah, I think you have to demonstrate it yourself. Uh, one of the ways that you can do that is when you go into a conversation with somebody who you may disagree with or someone that has very strong op opinions, not automatically trying to prove them wrong, not automatically you yeah. know, putting your defenses up and trying to make sure that you look like you, you, you know everything and that they know nothing. A better way to go about it and to diffuse the situation is by affirming what you can and what they're saying, right? If there's mm, anything that you yeah. can affirm and say, you know what? Your side, actually, your point of view actually gets that a lot better than mine does. What that tells them is, oh, okay, this person isn't trying to just go, you know, uh, tit for tat with me and, and leave. They're not with just trying to beat me. <laughs> yeah. Right. They're actually listening to what I have to say and trying to find a solution and willing to admit when they're wrong. And mm -hmm. that's one of the biggest problems that we have in the American discourse, especially when you think about ideological polarization is everyone has become so dishonest because no one wants to admit when they're wrong, even when it's clearly obvious to everybody <laughs> else. Yeah. We still hold on to that. And so we don't have any credibility among each other. Mm -hmm. And I think we have to build that credibility through relationship and through that type of humility. 
And really, that's Christian, right? That's a, yeah. That humility is necessary for Christians, but we are very prideful people when it comes to our ideological tribes and uh, partisanship. Yeah, I think we like to f- think that we've got it figured out, you know? And even when people switch camps, I mean, you see folks, I mean, on a different tack, you see folks who, like, even leave the faith and then, you know, within sure. 12 months are, are writing sen- seminars on, like, being an excellent <laughs> or something like that. You know what I mean? Sure. Like, yeah. just everybody wants to be an expert overnight on stuff and working through the process and being willing to be wrong is is challenging. I kind of wanted to to grab on this idea of moral imagination as well and and maybe like apply it here in this conversation and hear your thoughts on a few issues. I've got a big doozy of one, but I think I'm going to save that one to second and start with maybe an easier one first, which is kind of a conversation we had with uh, a previous guest, Alan Noble, about the dignity of work. So the question fundamentally is what would the moral imagination imagine for a real worker's like dignity in the United States. We were talking about, you know, hey, the, the grocery store worker is just as dignified a job, but then the reality is that person isn't going to get paid a living wage. So do you really want your friend working it? And how can it be dignified if it's not compensated accordingly? Things like that. So how would you apply a moral imagination to dignity of work in our, in our situation now? Yeah, that's a good question. I, I think it could start maybe even with a CEO, right? A CEO that's not taking a salary that's, you know, 200 times more than most of the per- people that work for them. Mm. Uh, someone who sets the standard to say, hey, I'm going to, you know, demand good work from for, from you, but I'm also going to do what I can to make sure that this work has dig- dignity, that has meaning, you know, that uh, there's paid family leave and things of that nature. One of the things that Alan Noble talks about very well in his book is this the idol of efficiency. I don't know if he calls it an idol, but I think that's basically Mm. what it is, that efficiency is everything. And I think Mm. when we Mm -hmm. think about American, the American market in general, efficiency Mm. has really dehumanized people, especially the workers that are on the lower end of the the pay scale. Uh, Mm, They've been, you know, the burden of all this stuff has been placed on them. Hey, we need products done cheaper. Let's just send it overseas. And that has, in a lot of ways, ruined ruined and really hurt the working class in, in so many ways when you look at these cities like Detroit and the and you know the list goes on and on and on of folks just saying hey it's easier for me to outsource it's easier for me not to deal with it i need to make this dollar efficiently right now i think a ceo with moral imagination would say no i want to i want this to have meaning i want people to be able to work and be proud of their work if that means i have to take a pay cut if that means i need to take a, a different stance and create a different culture within this corporation. That's what I'm willing to do. Easier said than done. When you you know you have shareholders that you you yeah. have to sell moral imagination to them too. Well, yeah. At some point, people have to have integrity and do things mm-hmm. for the right reason and really have a long you know a long view of what's going on. Moral imagination actually is very practical mm-hmm. because at the end of the day, when you make an idol out of efficiency, when you do all the things that have hollowed out. Uh, really our middle class and other folks, it actually wasn't a good move. It was just good in the moment. Mm. And again, moral imaginations helps you see outside that moment that somebody say, well, hey, if we outsource all this stuff and send everything overseas, how are we, you know, and we're not manufacturing anything, won't that hurt us in the end? Won't that strengthen China and other folks who we think we can't trust? Um, So it's actually a practical aspect to it as, as well, but it helps you see past the moment. And I just don't think 
people are seeing past the moment with with these very you know these quick fixes and getting the most money that we can out of people and out of the market that we can at the moment. I think that brings up an interesting point, though, talking about the integrity part, because at some level, should we as a society just leave it to one company's moral integrity to make these things happen? Also, knowing that they are facing strong incentive because of competition in the market, like you mentioned, to not do that. Like if everybody else <laughs> they are is taking this shortcut... To not acknowledge and and promote dignity and flourishing. And so at what point is it really the government's responsibility to step in to say, hey, this corporate power that the whole market has kind of distributed out in in this, you know, immorality, not to say immorality in a, in a strong sense, but yeah, we've we've treated people wrongly. And as the protector of these citizens, as the government's supposed to be in a sense, like, we're not going to let you treat folks like that. The private versus government responsibility. Can you talk a little bit about how you think through those things? Like when you're making policy decisions, you know, because I feel like that's where a lot of this stuff does break down too. You might come up with a policy decision, but especially where I'm, I'm living now, people are very wary on, on that. You know, if they want to see private responsibility first before government law, they think everything government does is overreach. <laughs> Yeah, I think the government has a role to play. Uh, I think the government should incentive, disincentivize practices that in the long run are going to hollow out the country, are going to make the country, put the country, well, destabilize the country. Maybe that's the best way to put it. And I think it has been destabilized to some extent from some of the moves that have been made based off that immediate uh, idea of efficiency. Uh, so, yeah, the government has a role to play. There, there are regulations that can be put in place to protect people. Um, you know, the idea that, you know, we could just have this open market where everybody is just going to be forced to do the right thing because the incentives will just show up through this invisible hand. I, I think it's time to, to, to start questioning that. Now, I, I, you know, I believe in capitalism. I think there's a value to the innovation of capitalism. So I'm not suggesting right. anything else. Smartly regulated capitalism is good. Yeah. Open capitalism where you just allow, you know, these the folks at the top to do whatever they want and hopefully... Yeah they have a little bit of benevolence at some time or another is just not the way to go about it. Yeah. So maybe not the extreme libertarianism that we've been yeah. seeing from the, from the right. Exactly. Government has a role to play a, a serious role to play, but also you are going to have to have people who want to do it the right way. I mean, you, you know, you don't want government to be too heavy handed because I don't think that works either uh, because those are people with agendas that are in those positions as well. And so, uh, you know, I always like to see, kind of uh, government and private, you know, private actors kind of balancing each other out. Yeah. So on that note, you talked about one of the big wins that the, uh, like the home base and campaign chapter in Atlanta had uh, in regards to housing. Can you kind of tell us a little bit about how that situation happened and kind of how maybe other chapters uh, and other cities can kind of look at that as a potential model? Yeah, I mean, it's ongoing. So I, I wouldn't say that we've uh, won the final war in that regard, but I think we have uh, done pretty good in some battles there. And what was happening, just like it's happening in many cities, is just gentrification is just, is just rampant in, the, in Atlanta. There's not enough affordable housing. We didn't feel like the plan for affordable housing coming from the administration was uh, robust enough. And so we worked with other groups to um, get a pause on development in, in these particular areas until there was a better plan for uh, for affordable housing and making mm. sure 
that the poor people wouldn't be kicked out of the city of Atlanta. Because one of the things that's happening all over the country is, you know, a lot of folks tore down the projects, but Mm -hmm. didn't really have a plan to make sure that people weren't displaced. When you leave the city and you don't have a lot of resources, you're leaving where all the services and resources are. So before, even though, you know, I'm not defending the projects, but one thing that you could do in that situation was find people who needed help in a concentrated area and get that help to them. And uh, when they're spread out and they're now in the suburbs around people where they don't have as much resources as their neighbor does, it's harder to get resources to them. So again, no way is that saying that the projects were good. The sad part is we didn't have a strong plan to prevent displacement once a lot of the projects were torn down. And so a lot of cities are going through that. Some almost seem like they're too far gone, Mm. uh, but I don't think Atlanta is there. And we were able to bring together a diverse group of Christians to advocate with other groups uh, on behalf of the people. Don, that's brilliant. That's another great example of like moral imagination and thinking about, hey, what are the downstream effects of things like the housing and the development? And I think, you know, a lot of churches can just stand by and if unless it's the midterms or the national election, <laughs> you know, they're not really worried about what's happening in the development in their community. They just think like, oh, people are building stuff. That's cool. And not really thinking about those things. How do you get people to turn their focus on important issues like that around them? Well, I mean, you, you, you've got to be able to create a storyline. You've got to have a narrative. Now, it should be an honest narrative. But you have to move people through explaining what the problem is and how it can change and how and empowering them to do it Uh, from there. You know, that's all a part of organizing people to get going. But you have to be able to shift people's focus because it is is easy for people. People aren't just focused on one issue. They have jobs. They have family members that they're taking care of, all these other things. And so you do have to have kind of uh, something that pulls people in to say, no, look at this because it's a big problem and it's going to change how, you know, it's it's really going to hurt your neighbor if we don't act. And I think to some extent, again, with other folks, we were able to to turn people's attention towards that issue. And we're going to have to continue to do it because it's something that it's a continuing uh, battle. But Justin, the church's role is just to preach the gospel. So <laughs> why are we going to take a Sunday off of, of preaching or whatever else to, to turn people's, to craft this story? When, when, how's this going to happen? Well, I, I would suggest that you don't take a Sunday off. Uh, I, I think being in church and being prayerful about it is very important. So I wouldn't uh, not have service, but I would try to find some time and work within institutions to make sure that we're taking care of the widow, you know, uh, the immigrant and, and so on. Because the Bible in so many ways over and over tells us that we're supposed to do. I don't know how you get through the prophets and not understand that God cares about how the poor are treated. God cares about uh, making sure that we have impartial um, judges and things of that nature. Uh, we're here. He does that work through us. Mm-hmm. And so, yes, first and foremost, our major, the, the first thing we're supposed to do is spread the gospel. I completely believe that. But there's fruit within that. And, mm. and when we do for our neighbor, it's indicative of what's written on our heart, even if that's not what saves us. That work, you know, and having God in our hearts compels us to love our neighbor through that kind of self-sacrificial action. Mm. So one of the things you just said got me thinking. I was thinking about asking you, I mean, I'll just confess, it's something that I I often think of much after the fact. Um, how do we view prayer and how should we prioritize prayer in the role of social justice, economic justice, racial justice, things like that. Yeah. You know, I would be afraid of where I would end up in trying to do this kind of work without the 
guidance of the Holy Spirit without prayer. Um, it is so easily easy to get sidetracked, to lose sight of what of what your initial initial objective was. If you don't have, you know, if you don't have that prayer life and if you aren't making sure that you're, you're being guided in the right direction, uh, that's something that we cannot let go of. Um, because at the end of the day, a lot of what we do, it's not it's not going to end all suffering. Right. Mm -hmm. But it can help people or it can hurt people. And one of the things that I tell people and why I think prayer is important and in and, 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 and kind of this dependence on, on the Holy Spirit is some of the causes that we see throughout history that ended up really bad and really negative and really hurting people were initially good causes. Hmm. A lot of times this was people trying to do the right thing, but yeah. they chose the dark arts oh. instead of, instead of going the right way. Hmm. Um, and I, th I think you can look at a lot of different folks and, and see that there's always the decision you have to make. And it seems to be more effective to choose the dark arts to choose to do it the wrong way. And you'll make that decision. I think without, without prayer, but you got to decide if I'm going to do this, win, lose, or draw, I'm going to do it righteously. Hmm. And I, I, you can't do that without prayer and the strength and protection uh, that prayer gives you. Because I can tell you, I mean, what we're trying to do and the stances that the AND campaign takes, you know, there's a lot of arrows flying at us. And hmm. we wouldn't have made it this far if it wasn't for uh, the protection that, that we've received from God. Yeah. Yeah. I, I wanted to chime in about that because, you know, as you look at how, how important prayer is, the lack of it, as well as the lack of moral imagination really leads to the, um, the dogmatic almost necessity, at least in this current culture of the culture war. And I know you recently talked about that in your, in your podcast and you hit on something that was super interesting that I wanted to, ask about and kind of flesh out here um, because you were basically making a, a pretty great case as uh, as to like how culture war as a term started, how it kind of got shaped and changed, and then how it's being used and manipulated in a lot of ways, uh, the term itself as well as the actions within it. So you came to the resolve of not choosing a side in the culture war what wisdom would you share of not choosing a side in the culture war? Yeah. So I, I want to be very clear. And this is where I think people get it wrong. If there's any criticism of the and campaign, it's this. And I think the folks that are bringing that criticism are, are missing the point. Not choosing a side in the culture war is not the same thing as not choosing to do right. Mm, facts. Or, or trying to uh, avoid uh, any, any kind of critique because you don't take a, you don't take a position at all. We're not saying don't take a position. Mm -hmm. We're saying don't take a position based on the culture war framework. Uh -huh. mm -hmm. The reason that we shouldn't take a position based on the culture war framework is because the culture war framework always leaves out something very important to the gospel. Yes. So if I go about the social justice conversation and I go about it through a culture war perspective, well, I got to throw out the Christian sexual ethic. I got to throw out the sanctity of life, right? That's, a, that's, that's too much of a compromise for Christians. Mm -hmm. If I go about the LGBTQ conversation and I take the culture war conservative side of that, then I've got to leave out compassion and making sure people don't get discriminated against in other ways. I've got to leave out making sure people don't necessarily get bullied. Uh, are we looking at how people have suffered and how the church has not always treated people with dignity? Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. Church has hurt people who are struggling with same sex attraction. I'm not willing 
to continue hurting people in that way because I, I need to choose a side in the culture war. And so yeah. that's our biggest thing. We're not telling people don't take a position and take it loudly and aggressively sometimes. Don't take a position within those two frameworks because you'll end up in a place that is mm. not biblical, that's not faithful, and you'll be hurting your neighbor because it's going to leave out something very important. Man, mm. I mean, just take that entire segment, wonderful question, Vince, and put that as the explainer on why we say we're engaging the culture without the culture war right there. Because that yeah, just put is, that on repeat. yeah, that is that is exactly it right there. Um, that's the aim. No, I, that's a awesome explanation. All right, I, I want to get to my second kind of workshop of this moral imagination thing. And I think you mentioned it there. It's kind of a culmination of a number of factors we've talked about in this episode. And that is, how do we morally imagine a world regarding a w- woman's rights, contraception, abortion, an unborn baby's right to life in this framework? And what, what would we want to see happen? I mean, in that in that light, I, I'll probably have a billion follow up question, questions on this, but just go ahead and get started on what's how does the moral imagination framework apply to the issue of abortion in America specifically? Yeah, sure. So one of the problems and abortion fits within this this within this issue, as I said earlier, I'm an attorney. I can ask you guys a question with two wrong answers. <laughs> I, think, I think what's happened in our society is we're being asked questions with two wrong answers. True. And I think abortion fits within that. So we're asked, do you support women or do you support the unborn child? Um, and I would it's say- It's a dumb dichotomy. Right. I, w- I would say that's a false dilemma, right? Yeah. yeah. But what Christians have to do in these instances is, again, not take the culture war perspective, but use moral imagination to go beyond those two options. Yes. And say, you know what? I care about both. So, yes, I want to protect the baby in the womb, but I also want to look at the uh, maternal mortality rate in Georgia, Mississippi, you know, uh, mm-hmm. Alabama and these places and see how I can impact that as well. I also want to look at why women uh, who are well intent, very well intentioned, think that abortion is the best thing for them. Is it a lack mm-hmm. of resources? Where can I be helpful in that regard? And again, I'm sorry. The government has some has a, a place in both sides of that conversation. For sure. So moral imagination forces us to reframe the question in much the same way that Jesus reframed bad questions. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. We have to be willing to do that. And I think taking a side in that culture war perspective where you choose what's what's in front of you is laziness. Mm-hmm. We're, we're not taking the time. We're being too lazy and not taking the time to have the moral imagination think it through and say there's a better way to get at this that's more faithful. Um, and I think, I think we have to just be determined to do that in a different way. So along those lines, then, is the fight kind of a culture war kind of fight that's been going on to overturn Roe the right work? Or should we be after something else and maybe even maybe a compromise solution, but something that would be more that would that would protect the child and the mother in ways i think christians can land on different positions on that i think we need to very be very clear on what we think about the right to life mm-hmm. and the sanctity of life for sure but i think there's, i think there's different ways to, to go about it i'll say this i think just focusing on roe by itself and nothing else is not the right way to go right so if you want roe overturned i completely get that i'm not mm-hmm. mad, i'm not mad at you at all sure yeah but that by itself 
is not enough when you look at everything else that's going on. A lot of people get hung up on that, but it's like, okay, but how does that actually help people? Bottom yes. line, like, how does that help mothers? Like, that just kicks it to the states. Like, what what does that do? Yeah. And be willing to rearticulate it too, right? Um, be willing to to say, you know what? Our talking points are getting old. They're not connecting. You know, they may not be connecting with people. We need to talk about this differently. But yeah, it's more than just Roe. Uh, you know what? You hit it on the head. Roe's just going to kick this down to the states. Mm-hmm. You can talk about Casey. But even yeah. just Roe and Casey, there's more to this conversation about what women are going through than just that. Right. Uh, which doesn't mean only those are important. And not even worrying about like the freshness or persuasiveness of the talking points. It's like, are these things right? <laughs> like, if we examine it's these true. talking points in a while, yeah, that too. And, and we talked about this on our abortion episode, which only got us a little bit of flack. I thought it might got us a little <laughs> bit more, but like, yeah, probably like, the more people do, listen to it then. <laughs> why do people like why? Like you said, why, why do women think abortion is something that might be helpful for them? Like. It's probably not because most of the women getting them are like terrible maniacs. Like, what what systems are they? Like, what are their circumstances? What led them to this decision? It's like, and just outlawing it, and like, like you said, putting the whole burden of everything on them. Like, that's that's probably not the most helpful thing. Like, we should probably we should probably actually critically examine these things. Yeah, and that's where I found myself like in this kind of weird spot being being here in texas too like i don't know whether to cheer or not for this thing that they've done you know because on the one hand it's like okay they've found a way to prevent abortions and it looks like the supreme court's just gonna let it hang you know like they're not gonna do anything about it but on the other hand the way they went about it seems somewhat i mean still anti-democratic in a way but then also like just yeah yeah it's kind of weird like they've got this bounty system or something it feels like set up like it just doesn't seem right you know like it at at some fundamental level yeah it seems like the the way that they went about it was clever but almost too clever right and so it seems like it's setting up the situation where there are going to be a lot of unintended consequences where they're putting people in very adversarial positions well, this doesn't need to be about adversarial, okay, I'm hunting you down to make sure you're not, you know what I'm saying? And so it may seem like it works in theory, but I think you're putting folks in a position where there's going to be some unintended consequences that there has to be a better way to go go about this that's that's more clear and straightforward. And just. (laughs) I'm concerned too about like, if that's okay, like if a state can do that, can can out basically roundabout outlaw a behavior by basically setting a bounty on it what else can they do that to you know what other behaviors what other things could the state regulate you know yeah texas does this and especially in a one-sided nature like that's just whoever's in power can beat people up but but i'm also thinking about yeah like what kind of reach that could have you know what if you know not to not to play the dumb culture war card of like oh what if they come after christians but you know what i mean like in theory if they could do this legally to this behavior where's the limit on that you know it's just kind of a concerning exercise of, of power in that way well there's none right like plenty of people in the culture say that like our faith is harmful in certain ways so like who's to say that like the people who think they're so clever like, like who, who consider themselves christians going yes we did it we stopped this practice like that could very easily get turned around yeah i'll just say let's keep in mind that the, the means always matter 
Yeah. Right. So we're not just yes. looking at, okay, did we get to the conclusion that we wanted to get to? What were the means and are, are those healthy? And, and what does it do to the civic landscape and, and, yeah. and you know, interaction between citizens? So we'll, we'll have to see, but I don't think that one passes the smell test for a lot of people. And yeah. uh, I worry about the, the unintended consequences. And it's great to hear you say that as someone too who stands here and, and and advocates for the sanctity of life, for for the rights of the unborn and things like that. You know, it's like it's not about teams. It's about is it right? Is it true? Yeah, that's right. I wanted to change directions just a little bit um, because I, I know I felt this myself before, as well as I have plenty of friends feeling this in its political fatigue. Mm-hmm. How do you encourage a person? who might be feeling a bit of just political fatigue Mm. and may want to abandon their responsibility just because they don't want to be involved. I feel political fatigue. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I I would just say bow out of some of the arguments. Stop going back and forth with people about Mm. every single issue. You don't Mm. have to argue about every single issue. You don't have to put your uh, emotions or, you know, just get passionate about every single thing somebody says. Stop watching cable news. Uh, don't respond to people on social media all the time. You know, let it go. If somebody has something to say, just let it go. But what you can't do is not be civically engaged. Mm-hmm. Uh, how do you think, and this is one way I always think about it that helps me. How do you think the folks on the front lines of the civil rights movement felt? Mm-hmm. You don't think they, they were tired? And, you know, sometimes we can take that a little too I'm tired and I just can't go on. Well, people have been through a lot more than you and, and did go on. Now, if you have some other issues, you know, mental health and all that, that's I'm not an expert on that. So I'm not speaking to that. Sure. But just, just in general, if you're passionate and you care about people, don't give up. Don't stop because there's some kid who needs resources, mm. some kid who needs a better education that's depending on you to keep fighting. And yeah. there have been many Christians and there's a lot of inspiration to see people who probably put in a lot more work than we have uh, up, up until now that kept going. Mm-hmm. And that's what that is for. That's what, you know, that's, that's what your prayer is for. That's what your exactly. fellowship and your church is for to, 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 to get a kind of release. Your whole life doesn't have to be about <clears throat> social justice or any other issue. Uh, but don't give up because uh, I, think, I think it's important that we keep going for those who are in need. Mm-hmm. It's not easy. You know, one of the things that disappoints me sometimes is, People get into these conversations, even with the housing thing that we did. And if they don't see a change in nine, six months, that's, mm. you know, that changed the world, then they're out. Mm. And that's just not realistic. Uh, that's kind of an immature way to go about it. And so you need to be ready to be kind of long suffering and stand in there. But do, mm-hmm. it with the group. do it with the group, do it within community so you have people to lean on and absolutely do it with a healthy prayer life. Amen. Got one last uh, specific question here, Justin. Uh, what what are some specific ways maybe stay-at-home moms can kind of be engaged in these things, prioritize social justice work, and kind of disciple their kids like in anti-racism ways? But also like how can all sorts of people, people with jobs, people who who are not political activists or or presidents or members of political organizations or lawyers, like how can how can the every person be engaged in these things? Yeah, man. I mean, stay-at-home moms. That's that's not an e- that's not an easy job. That's not a you know an easy task. But stay-at-home moms are like a a sleeping giant when it comes to politics and things of that nature. Because sometimes mm-hmm. there is a little more flexibility. They can make calls. And so what I would do is say, 
if you know of an organization, it doesn't have to be the AND campaign. There may be other organizations that's doing good work. Volunteer. Uh, when you can, try to go up to the city council meeting to understand what's going on. Uh, but there's so many things that, you know, folks can do when they have a little bit of flexibility, even when they have a tough job going on. And stay-at-home moms, man, I mean, th- those, that can be a very powerful group uh, once they, you know, once they put their minds together and they're able to volunteer and they're able to lead. I mean, there may be stay-at-home moms and I want to just act like they have to take a, you know, you, you, you may take time to kind of get into where you want to be. But you may be able to organize other moms or organize people and create your own organizations. I think you have opportunities to not just represent your kids, but represent other people's kids when it comes to education and the school board and things of that nature. Those are some of the things that you can do. But I always recommend trying to do it within institutions because the way our system works, it's just very hard for somebody to do something by themselves. Right. We're to work together, especially as believers. And so I say join an organization, volunteer. If you want to take it slow, take it slow as you figure out what's going on. But there's a lot of work you can get done if you're committed over a long period of time. Mm-hmm. Fantastic. I see some of your work, too, following the lines of Fannie Lou Hamer, how she found and founded the uh, Freedom Democratic Party as kind of a third way. She wasn't taking the options that, that was given to her. If you could maybe recommend to folks some resources, I want to learn so much more about that story. I think there's so many people who are unfamiliar with that. Do you know anything off the top of your head that's like a go-to? I know you're, you're a book guy. That's why I kind of felt like I could put you on the spot and maybe you would, you would know. Yeah, I mean, uh, there's several really good biographies about Fannie Lou Hamer. Um, the one I read last, I think, was This Little Light of Mine, mm. uh, which will tell you about the, you know, the Democratic Freedom Party, which was a strategic way to challenge the Democratic Party, which was very much necessary at, at that moment. Um, and so, you know, what's what's awesome about her is you see that God can call somebody who to me, Fannie Lou Hamer is one of the best orators of her time, you know, uh, even up there with Martin Luther King, just how she moved people in a very grassroots way and sincere way that that really got people energized and really empowered people. So, yeah, that's one book I can think of off the top of my head mm. that would be good to, to kind of learn about who Fannie Lou Hamer was. You know, somebody who didn't have a lot of resources, but had a heart for God, which gave her a heart for people and really did everything she could to change uh, the situation in, in, in Mississippi and beyond. Awesome. I appreciate that recommendation. Yeah, I see that. This Little Light it. of Mine by uh, Kay Mills. Yep. So we want to... Uh, hit our uh, substance shout out segment here and just ask you what uh what have you been reading what have you been watching what have you been listening to what have you been taking in that you've either found enjoyable challenging stimulating edifying what has justin gibney been been uh consuming or thinking on lately uh culture media podcasts films what what have you yeah i'll be honest with you the last book i read and just finished this week was Alan Noble's book, You're Not Your Own. So uh, I think it's very, I mean, a very, very good book. And I knew mm-hmm. the brother could write. He's a friend of mine, but he even uh, surprised me in how well written that is and how important it is for the moment. So that's one thing, you know, that's one book that has really uh, helped me out. I mean, there's so much, there's so much going on. I've really been enjoying uh, A Time to Build. Uh, is another book that I've been reading by you, uh, Yuval Levin. And I read it earlier. I read it maybe the end of last year, beginning of this year, one of the two. But one of the best books I've read just about institutions and the importance mm-hmm. of institutions. 
So those are two folks on the kind of more conservative side. I've been also listening listening to uh, Slow Boring by um, um, is it Matthew Iglesias? Matthew Iglesias, yeah, yeah, Matthew Iglesias, which is a really good. Um, you can either listen to it or you can, you know, he has a, a Substack, and uh, that's been helping me out too. And it gives you a little bit of balance as well. So I'd recommend those, you know, those 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 two books and that one um, Substack is something that can can help you think a little differently from folks who have integrity and are trying to get at get at the right solutions, even in different ways. Nice. And I'll also ask you, since we're uh, wrapping up 2021 uh, here. Wow. I almost said 2020. <laughs> we're wrapping yeah. up 2021. It feels like we're still wrapping up 2020. Um, this episode will probably air at the very end of November, earlier December. You got a, you got a top two or three album. You got an album of the year in mind so far. What have you been listening to? Oh man, album of the year. <laughs> Kendrick what hasn't is- dropped yet, so that slot's still maybe open. But yeah, uh, if Kendrick drops, it'll be Kendrick. I'll be honest with you; I've been kind of <laughs> disappointed about the big ones. Um, I'm a, yeah? historically have been a huge Kanye fan. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was interesting. It was. I wanted him to rap though. You know what I mean? Like so. Yeah. Maybe Thank I, you, maybe Thank you so Justin. Cool. That's the audio. I wanted here. him to I'm rap. Send it to all my Kanye, my my <laughs> Kanye, uh, ugh, my friends who just maybe, don't maybe see that anything. Maybe that was selfish of me, but I wanted him. I wanted bars, yeah. and uh, right. That wasn't that wasn't what he was going for, I guess. And so it wasn't really my lane. Uh, but I don't know. I don't know that I've heard anything that I've just been really, really moved. I'm also waiting for show. Uh, Baraka to come out hmm. with another one. I was just talking Healthcare to him. Healthcare was nice, but that was just a single. I like that. Yeah, nah, we need more, man. So mm-hmm. I've, I've been pushing him on that too. But off the top of my head, I don't, I, I can't remember any music that I was just like, okay, this is definitely the album of the year. Um, if I had a little more time, maybe I could think of one. But I, mostly what has stuck out to me is a, a few disappointments. What do you think about J. Cole? This is, yeah, we all might even yeah. cut, I might even cut this, but <laughs> just off Cole's the top three for me yeah. right now. Yeah. J. Cole's off season. I'll be honest with you, man. I'm not a, I'm not a huge J. Cole guy. There it is. Oh, I respect him, but I, and you know, yeah. I love props. Uh, Terraform, his first Terraform EP, I thought props first one was phenomenal. Mm-hmm. Yeah, man, we need, we need, we need some of that, man. I'm, I'm hopefully Andy Minio was good too though. I did I yeah. did like that. I did like that album. Um, finish that. Yeah, I did like that album, but but yeah, man, I'm just kinda kinda waiting for show. And, I like and, it. And, and, Kay and Kendrick. Yeah. <laughs> Excellent. Well, Justin, we appreciate you coming on, sharing a little bit about the work that you've been doing and just sharing your time with us and uh your strategic, your politically strategic mind, but ultimately your faithful biblically faithful stances and and thoughts we appreciate that conviction that the word of god is to be followed alongside of hey part of following the word of god is it calls us to love our neighbor so just thank you for your testimony and witness and your time with us this evening if anybody wants to follow get involved with the and campaign things like that what would you have them do where would they uh follow you listen get involved that kind of thing yeah, so Twitter, Instagram, it's just uh, at A-N-D campaign. You can follow us there. You can follow me at Justin E. Gibney, G-I-B-O-N-E-Y on Twitter and Instagram. If you want to get involved or start a chapter in your area, you can email us at engage at A-N-D campaign dot org. Boom. So yeah, Love it. hopefully you get a, a deluge of, of emails of folks wanting to start start chapters. Well, thank you for your time tonight, Justin. We appreciate you. Thanks for having me, guys. Keep up the good work. Thank you. That was the very esteemed and 
very thoughtful and very active Justin Gibney. Very focused, very on track. Man. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, listeners, thank you. We are wrapping up 2021 here and just looking back at some of the numbers that we have just as far as tracking the various progress we've made on the show, looking at the guests. Uh, shout out to Haley, one of our listeners, tracking all of our shout outs. We're getting a lot of data here and just kind of looking back and seeing what God has been able to do through the substance has been very exciting. We particularly appreciate everybody who's joined in as um, a supporter of the show on Anchor at either 5 or $10 a month. You guys are are super encouraging to us. So yeah. we're trying, we're rounding out the uh, 21 and 21 campaign here. If anybody is interested and able to join at 5 or $10 a month, you can do that, like we said, in the Anchor link below or to just give little tips here and there, throw a little bit in our tip jar, say, hey, thanks for putting out a free, high-quality show every week. I really appreciate it. You can do that at a Cash App at dollar sign, The Substance Pod, and we thank you. Visit us at thesubstancepod.com. There we are going to have our episodes. We're going to have our bios. Go check us out. You know, get to know us a little bit. Hey, we got some nice photos up there. Yeah, we got exactly. bios all nice and sleek. Check it out. Go ahead and check it out now. It's a comment section. You can leave comments and stuff. Yeah, definitely leave a comment under this episode or any episode that you listen to on the website. In the upper right-hand corner of the site, you can also follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. If we have any guests, any giveaways, anything that's coming down the pipeline, you'll definitely want to be following us for those updates. So, Visit us at thesubstancepod.com. Substancepod.com. If you have a specific uh, question for Justin, uh, throw it in there and maybe we'll let him know and maybe get him to uh, personally jump in there and answer some of your questions. Hitting up thesubstancepod.com is the main way. We would love to see people engage. There's a form there you can fill out that will uh, direct to our email, which is thesubstancepod at gmail.com. The only thing really um, outside the website that w- that is a good thing to do as a means of engagement is our phone line and that well, is the number you can click that on our mobile website is that yep. yeah boom so so even there the substancepod.com is your one-stop shop for everything but if you're listening on your phone right now and just want to dial us up and leave some thoughts it was cool to hear um justin talking about a lot of these things and honestly like just resonating so much with um a lot of what we were doing given the best explanation that that i can think of for why we engage the culture without the culture war so mm-hmm. so great Do you have any sure. thoughts on that you would love to talk about or or resonate with or share your own thoughts of that is 913-703-3883 give us a ring there and if you leave us some thoughtful comments that we want to play might even end up on the show um so check us out the substancepod.com come hang around talk with the folks that are there and we will see you next time on the substance peace gosh why am i blinking so hard (laughs) substancepod.com the substance part. Did I say that? Yeah. Okay, so you see, I'm gonna start say over. it a whole bunch till people go there a lot. <laughs>